I hope you all have had a good eating contest. I mean, holiday. <laughs> same joke last year. I'll probably have the same joke next year. It's my only joke of the morning. I'm not a comedian. I'm not here to perform. Thankfully, I'd be really nervous if I was performing. I'm here to preach God's word, and I'm looking forward to digging into God's word this morning. I'm, I'd ask you this morning, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 2, and I'll start with prayer. Lord, what a beautiful morning we've had this morning already. Lord, I'm thankful that we've had the opportunity and privilege to enjoy um, folks making an appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ via water. Lord, we celebrate that. We're thankful, too, that we've had the chance to sing true things about you back to you out loud to one another so that we hear those things and we enjoy them. We're stirred by those things. We're equipped. We're renewed. And I'm thankful, too, that you're inhabiting those praises. Lord, I'm thankful that you're already here. We don't have to invite you in. Lord, I do ask that you would use these next few moments to show us the greatness and the goodness and the glory and the grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray specifically and surgically and strategically that we would enjoy that through the birth place in Bethlehem and through some of the first visitors and even, interestingly enough, through ones who didn't visit. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, too, this morning I want to pray for another local church. I'm thankful for the chance to lift up Jimmy Vaughn this morning and Authentic Life Fellowship, Lord. Uh, they have some festivities going this morning, an announcement of some things that are taking place. And Lord, I pray that you would bless ALF, that you would bless Jimmy and his family. Lord, I pray that he would be fueled by, driven by worship. I pray that you would guard his life and his heart and his mind from this sense of a job and a duty and that he would be serving out of just worship. Thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Thankful for the opportunity to bless or for ask for your blessings over how we spend these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chris McCandless was born in El Segundo, California, February 12, 1960. couple subsequently had one more child, a daughter named Corrine. McCandless also had six half-siblings from Walt McCandless's first marriage, who lived with their mother in California. In 1976, the family relocated to Washington, D.C. and settled in suburban Annandale, Virginia, when McCandless's father was hired as an antenna specialist for NASA. His mother worked as a secretary at Hughes Aircraft. The couple went on to establish a successful consultancy business out of their home, specializing in Walt's area of expertise. I'm just going to interject something right here that I'm just going to say these guys are living the dream. Living the American dream. McCandless graduated from W.T. Woodson High School in Fairfax, Virginia in 1986. He excelled academically, although a number of teachers and fellow students observed that he marched to the beat of a different drummer. In the summer of 1986, McCandless traveled to Southern California and reconnected with distant relatives and friends. And it was during this journey that he learned that his father had not yet divorced his first wife when McCandless and his sister, Corrine, were born and had apparently maintained somewhat of a double life before their move to Virginia. Hmm. He graduated from Emory University in May of 1990 with a bachelor's degree in the double majors of history and anthropology. And after graduating, he donated most of his savings to charity. Then he traveled across North American continent, eventually hitchhiking to Alaska in April of 1992. There he set out along an old mining road known as the Stampede Trail with minimal supplies, hoping to live simply off the land. In September of that year, 1992, his body weighing only 66 pounds, was found by a, hit, by a hunter in a converted bus with the markings Fairbanks Bus 142. The bus was used as a backcountry shelter along the Stampede Trail on the eastern bank of the Shoshana River. His cause of death was officially ruled to be starvation. He had a journal that he kept, and of this journal, there were 113 days that he documented in the area. 
in and around this bus. In July, after living on the bus for three months, he decided to head back to civilization, but the trail was blocked by the swollen Teklanika River. The water by that stage was considerably higher and swifter than when he'd crossed it in April. McCandless was unaware of a hand-operated tramway that crossed the river eight-tenths of a mile away from where he had previously crossed. His final written journey entry, noted as Day 107, simply read, Beautiful Blue Berries. The days 108 through 113 contained no words and were marked with only slashes. Man, it's a tragic story of a guy searching for something, like he's hunting for something, or at the very least, running from something. We'll come back to Chris later in the morning. Let's climb into our passage. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had happened. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, the plan for the morning. I like to give a map, sort of an audible map, so you kind of have a sense of where you're listening and where you are in the story or where you are in the morning. What I'm going to do in these first few minutes is we're going to do sort of a character study of the main characters. We're going to leave out Mary. But we're going to take just a few minutes to sort of grab the details. It'll probably be a little bit more like teaching, okay? kind of considering each of these main characters in this short little story. And then I'm going to throw some rocks, okay, metaphorically, so you can rest easy. All right, so let's climb in. Let's deal with the first character in this story, at least the first I want to deal with. I want to deal first with Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a place. It'd be strange to think of a place and a sort of personify a place. But the prophet does, and Matthew does, as he reminds us, and he reads this, or he, he sort of recommits or reconveys this prophecy from the book of Micah, Micah in chapter 6, or excuse me, verse 6. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. Matthew has a super high view of this place called Bethlehem. Something that's interesting is the passage that he's actually quoting comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And I'll just read it. You can maybe jot that down and look at it later. But listen to the difference. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It's interesting here that Matthew points out how important Bethlehem is, and Micah seems to sort of emphasize how insignificant this little town is. Either way, the meaning is wonderful. From this little town comes the promised Messiah from ancient days 
times. I love right off the bat as we consider this passage that there's an irony theme in our Bibles really cover to cover. You hear it often here from this pulpit that he takes the foolish things that confound the wise. And here it is from little wee Bethlehem. I was trying to think of what might be our version, maybe Quinlan. From wee Quinlan comes the Messiah, that he takes the foolish things that confound the wise. Cover to cover, from Bethlehem will come the Messiah. Secondly, character-wise, let's consider the person of Jesus. We don't know exactly how old he is at this point, the visit of the Magi, but we know he's probably less than two years old. Because in the passages that follow, Herod has the two-year-old and younger boys killed. And he gets that time frame from the report of the Magi. So we get the sense here that Jesus was less or younger than two years old at the time. He's still living in Bethlehem, so he's likely not in a stable at that point. The stable likely was some sort of cave or something like that. The census had passed, so we would expect by that point he could move into actual, they could move in to an actual physical structure, probably meager little quarters they were living in there in Bethlehem. Next, I want to consider the star. Let me share a passage with you from the book of Numbers. If you'd like to, you can turn there, but it's not, not critical. I may have you turn a few different places this morning, and this is not essential. From the book of Numbers, let me give you a little bit of context. I I think it's important to sort of bring this out because I think the passage I'm going to comes full circle later on in the morning. Just to give you a little context, in the book of Numbers chapter 24, there's a man named Balaam who's a prophet of the Lord. He's hired by a guy named Balak who's the king of Moab. Okay, the Israelites are bearing down on the Moabites and it looks like the Israelites are really gonna whip the Moabites. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, hires Balak, or excuse me, Balaam, to uh, curse Israel. It's a strange passage. If you've read it too, there's a donkey that speaks in this passage as well. I mean, it's really strange. But Balaam has four oracles. And every time he opens his mouth to curse Israel, he actually blesses Israel. It's crazy. You can imagine. You know those guys that every time they open their mouth to sort of fix a problem, they make it worse? This guy's the opposite of that. He's been hired to curse Israel, and as he's trying, the words that come out of his mouth actually bless Israel. And Balak, you can imagine, is saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. Stop blessing Israel. I hired you to curse him. So here it is in the fourth oracle that he says these words, beginning in verse 17. I see him, speaking of a deliverer, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Judah, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Balak is saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. We believe, scholars believe that the wise men likely studied this very passage that led them to look to a star. This seems to be the prophetic passage about a, a star indicating someone who was to come from Judah. We don't know what this star was. There's some accounts of the lining up or near lining up of Jupiter and Saturn around 7 BC. Some people think that maybe that's what it is, but they never really lined up perfectly and they actually had a width of about two moons distance. So that wouldn't explain some sort of concentrated star. There's some theories that it was a supernova. Okay. There's some explanations that I'm sure are really good. In fact, there's a video that we intend to show our youth at some point that probably has a really good explanation in it. And I don't want to get into the details of what it, what it was, some sort of scientific thing. I want to just draw from this passage. That it rose, as the Magi put it, in conjunction with the birth of Christ. And that the Magi even referred to this as his star. It rose, it seems, for their benefit, and they identified it as his star. And somehow it marked a geographic location for a period of time, for the period of time at least, that it took the Magi to get from wherever they lived, probably Babylon, about 900 miles away, to Bethlehem. That same trip took Ezra about four months. 
So, so this thing, this bright light that's in the sky that's marking a geographic location, at least stood there and led the way for some period of time. I really have no idea how this worked. I learned the hard way a long time ago, years and years ago. I was leading a platoon of Marines through the woods in the middle of the night. 13-click movement. City manager for Quinlan. I wasn't ragging on Quinlan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Context is everything. All right. I'm leading a, leading a platoon of Marines through um, the woods in the middle of the night in Quantico, Virginia. No flashlight. You don't use flashlights. That's the enemy will shoot you if you have flashlights. There's no enemy in Quantico, but we're doing some training. We had 13-click movement in the middle of the night, and I'm the navigator for that particular movement. And that means that I'm the guy with the compass. I'm the guy with the map. I had a team of guys that had poncho and red light. And every little while, you'd pull out the pro- break open the poncho and climb under the poncho and turn on the red light and look in the map. But for the most part, what you were doing every few steps you were taking, you're shooting an azimuth. You had a little little compass that had tritium vials in it so you could actually see them in the middle of the night. You're shooting this azimuth, but when it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face, there's nothing to shoot at. Okay, so I actually said, well, let me, let me see if I can kind of look outside of my context. There's no geographic features. So I looked up in the sky and there was this beautifully bright star. Like it was just right on line with our azimuth. So I said, I'm just going to aim at that azimuth. Well, 13 clicks over the middle of the night through the middle of the, or in the middle of the night through the middle of the woods will take hours and hours and hours and hours. So over the course of hours and hours and hours and hours, I'm following the star. <laughs> we ended up miles off where we were supposed to be. Miles, because the night sky changes. It moves. I don't know if you ever realized that. It actually moves, and it's not moving, particularly we're moving. We're spinning. So the notion of some sort of star marking a geographic location is like, man, that's got to be supernatural, like as in super, super natural. Something else is going on there. So I don't know that we really have to work real hard at explaining it scientifically. I think it's clearly some sort of supernatural event. How on earth a star marked a geographic location is beyond me. The only other place that I can think of where something bright is leading someone, as this star led the Magi, is the glory cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness. I wonder if that's something like what's going on here, except the glory cloud is now leading the Gentiles to Jesus. Whatever it was, it served the purpose of marking the location of the birth and the presence, the ongoing current presence, at least at the moment, of the Christ. He's important enough for a star or some sort of bright light or a glory cloud. And the Gentile magi, let me emphasize Gentile magi, apparently, are important enough to be led there. Okay, next in the character study, I want to consider a guy named Herod. I hope that you were paying attention to Herod as I read the passage. Maybe you weren't, but maybe you've read the passage before and you can kind of think about some of the details about Herod. It really looks like Herod from this passage is like super excitable. I mean like super excitable. I was grabbing just some of the verbs that came out of this passage as I read it. And you might look over your passage there. He's troubled when he's asked this question by the Magi. He assembles, he inquires, he summons and then ascertains. He sent, saying, go and search diligently and bring me word so I can go, air quotes, worship him. This guy is super excitable. He was born in 73 BC. He was appointed to be sort of a king-like figure over Israel by the Roman government. So it's sort of a, a, a pseudo king in the year 40 BC. He was the son of an Idumean, which is an Edomite. Some of you might know what Edomite is. Edomite, or Edom means red. And you kind of think about what else is red in this story cover to cover. Well, Esau was red, the red hairy guy. That means this guy descended from Esau. He was not from the line of Jacob. And he was considered a usurper. He wasn't supposed to be on the throne. This guy was an Idumean, son of Antipater. He was wealthy, he was politically savvy, he was loyal to Rome, and he was a great administrator. And here's what's interesting about this guy, too, is he was known for famine relief. Right? If you're hungry, that sounds good. I kind of like Herod if I'm hungry. 
and he's really good at famine relief. He was also really good at building projects, the temple being one of those building projects. And apparently the temple was pretty spectacular. Something else that's true about this guy is he loved power. You can see it in the pages of the Bible and in the extra-biblical accounts of this guy's character. He's also a lover of power, this Herod. In his final years, he suffered from, or we could say those around him suffered from, his mental illness, specifically manifesting itself as paranoia. He killed his wife and two sons before he died. Okay, On the day of his death, around 4 B.C., he arranged to have hundreds of Jewish leaders executed. <laughs> this guy was bad news. In the passage where it says that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, the likelihood, the reason all Jerusalem was troubled with him at the news of the possible news of a Messiah being born is they weren't troubled that the Messiah was, being, was born. They were troubled at what was Herod going to do when he finds out. And that was for a very good reason if you consider what happens next in the passages that we'll look at next week. Herod truly is a mess. Next in the story there of characters is the chief priests and scribes. They're next to last. Last we'll look at the wise men. But let's take a brief look at the chief priests and scribes. The chief priests, plural. There's only one chief priest. Okay, so what this is, this is the current chief priest and the past chief priests. They form like a kind of a council, more than a club, but kind of like a council of current and former chief priests. They were Sadducees. Okay, these guys were appointed by, or I should say replaced by, Herod at Herod's will. So they were beholding to him, as you might expect, not only for their jobs, but as I described, mental illness, for their heads. It's a very dangerous office, this chief priest. Okay, the scribes were Pharisees. These guys were experts in Jewish law, i.e., there was only other... The only other part of the Bible was the Old Testament. So they were experts in the Old Testament, and they were teachers of the law. Okay? The Sadducees and Pharisees, I want you to just understand this, they were not buddies. In fact, you would never see them in cahoots doing anything except going after Jesus. You don't ever see them being partners in anything until Jesus is born. <laughs> it's like that saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These guys are friends now at the birth of Jesus, and they're called before Herod, and they together give the, the report. It says they told him. It sounds like these guys are bedfellows now. And if you read the gospel, the rest of the gospel, they're bedfellows right on through the middle of his ministry as they're trying to trip him up, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're bedfellows right up to the end where they arrange for his arrest and crucifixion. Man, these guys were bad news. Lastly, let's look at the Magi. This is where I really wanted to get. We've kind of done the work for the morning. The Magi, I feel like, are sort of the central characters here. So I want to spend a few minutes enjoying these guys, the Magi. They're shadowed in the Exodus story. Okay, the story of the Exodus where the nation of Israel, this would be about 1,500 years before this moment. These guys are shadowed in that story. Ancient Hebrew tradition indicates that Pharaoh's astrologers were aware when Moses' mother was pregnant with him. Okay, that's not, we're not, not talking biblical evidence. We're talking about extra-biblical evidence from ancient Hebrew writings where it was common tradition that they believed that Pharaoh's astrologers had some insight and awareness that Moses um, was being carried by his mother, and that's why they had the uh, boys murdered. It wasn't due to overpopulation. It was due to, uh-oh, the deliverer's been born. At least that's what ancient Hebrew tradition says. So you can see some connections there that somehow it would be a nice picture for these guys to sort of see the deliverer's been born. Okay, but there's more to it than that. The Magi, the only other biblical picture that we have, a very clear biblical picture that we have of Magi are in Daniel's time, which would be you know, sometime during the exile, in the Babylonian exile. Uh, Daniel refers to these guys in four different places as dream interpreters. Okay, so we could consider these guys, at least in the time of Daniel, 
are dream interpreters. Now, by the time of the first century, magi, in addition to interpreting dreams, um, were into astrology, they were into magic, and they were into the prediction of the future. Okay, that was kind of their thing. We get the sense from the passage very clearly communicated that they came from the east. And that's why I'm going to put my finger on Babylon. Because if you go directly to the east and, the, and you look directly west, you've got Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Directly to the east, you've got Babylon. It would make a lot of sense for them to come from ba- Babylon. Because it's in Babylon there would be a contingent of Jews that would have ancient Jewish writings. Like Balaam's fourth oracle. Okay, so you get the sense these guys are studying and searching for some sort of truth and maybe even searched through ancient Hebrew writings. There's no real indication that there were three of them. That comes from three gifts. We don't know that there were three of them. There was more than one because they're, talk, they're referred to as plural, but we don't know that there were three. Tertullian, around 200 AD, was an early Christian writer. He's the first to even call them kings. We don't know that they were kings. He's looking likely through some Old Testament prophecies about the kings gathering and kneeling in Jerusalem at the feet of the king. So he imposes those passages on this story suggesting these guys were kings. Okay, there's also something interesting too that they had names by the 6th century. Melchon, Balthazar, and Gaspar. I guess they're just made up. I don't know where, <laughs> I don't know where they came from. But they're, kind of, you can, they, they're fitting names. Gaspar, Belfazar and Melchon. It's interesting that Matthew seems to point out the zeal of these guys. Now you look at some of the words that are used in this passage. We saw and we have come in verse 12. Or excuse me, in verse 2. In verse 10, they saw and they rejoiced. In verse 11, they saw and they fell down. Contrast that with the scribes and the chief priests who did nothing. You mean the Messiah's been born, maybe? Meh. But these guys are zealous. They had the scriptures that maybe they read in Babylon. They had the tradition. Or these guys, these particular chief priests and, and, and scribes, had the scriptures, the tradition, and the expectation, yet it's the magi from a foreign land that appear to be the only ones to visit Bethlehem looking for the Messiah. And here's one of the things I enjoy most about the magi. These guys recognized him as king from his birth. It's important what they didn't say. They didn't say, we've come to worship one born to be king of the Jews. But they recognized him already as king before they even knelt at his feet. Matthew presents this title here as king of the Jews as a bookend with the one given at his crucifixion. Bookends of a gospel, of a contrary king. Something about these last three groups that seem familiar to me. Okay, I want to look at kind of two groups from this point on. The first group, I want to look at Herod, the scribes and the Pharisees together. And then I want to look at the Magi. And I'm going to throw some rocks. There's a saying, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that holla is the one you hit. Okay, so we're going to see if anybody holla. Okay, here, let's deal with the Herods, the chief priests and the scribes first. Herod was more than excitable. He was more than crazy. He wanted to have Jesus murdered. Let that hit you for a moment. You hear about the birth of a baby and you want to have him killed. He wanted to have Jesus killed. Dead, not exiled, not imprisoned, not silenced. He wanted him dead. Man, that's an extreme response. And the chief priests and scribes seemed more interested in keeping their job and maybe their head and improving their standing than getting themselves over to Bethlehem to see the long-awaited promised Messiah. Okay, we're not talking about long distance. We're talking about Babylon, to Bethlehem, 900 miles. Jerusalem, where Herod, the chief priests, and the scribes were, is about a 10K. 6.2 miles distance. And these guys didn't bother. Man, just let that hit you for a moment. They want him dead. 
And the chief priests and scribes seem more interested in keeping their job than going to see the Messiah. Man, I'm trying for a minute to figure out what drives men like that. Self-preservation. Okay, self-promotion. Self-glory. Pride, maybe. Once you realize these guys were threatened by the notion of a humble, contrary, newborn king that came for the sick and the sinful. It looks like at this point only Herod's out for his head. Only Herod's out to kill him. But the scribes and the Pharisees join in not long after. Man, they're threatened by him. You may say at this point, there's no knowledge of his message of coming for the sick and sinful. They are out for him from the outset. His ministry hadn't even begun yet, and they want to kill him. Let that hit you for a minute. Man, I feel like this is the story of Cain and Abel all over again. I'm reading this going, what is going on here? And the Cain and Abel story is coming to mind. See, Herod is Cain could say, God, look at my famine relief. Look at my construction projects. I've rebuilt the temple of all things. Look at this. And God says, I have no regard for that, Herod. That's not what God wants, Herod. The chief priests and the scribes could say, look at how well we know the scriptures, God. Look at how seldom we sin. Look at how learned we are. And God says, I have no regard for your best works, Cain. So Cain tries to kill Abel. Man, it's familiar. It's familiar. The story and the disposition of these guys is not new. There's some accounts, some passages that give us a glimpse into the character of these people and the character of this time. They're written before and leading up to the Babylonian exile, but just listen to what's described here of these guys that you could say is present tense for the scribes and the Pharisees, and we can include Herod. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Woe to you guys who say, yeah, come Lord Jesus, come. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light for you. You're not even leaving Jerusalem. Scribes and Pharisees, you don't want Jesus to come back because it's going to mean your doom, your end. It is darkness and not light for you. (laughs) The light's for those who are going to Bethlehem. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. In Hosea, he says, you've plowed iniquity. Scribes and Pharisees, you could just interject that right here. You've plowed iniquity. You've reaped Injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way. Man, that's a testimony of these times right here. And these guys are threatened. And here's why they're threatened because it would cost them everything to renounce their good works, to declare bankruptcy. It would cost them. Everything. Now, I'm not throwing rocks at scribes and Pharisees this morning. That's a long throw 2,000 years ago. But I'm putting it in front of you all right now. What struck me as I'm preparing this week is the realization that we have folks that gather with on Sundays that do not believe that Jesus Christ is, is their Savior and Lord. Let me appeal to you. It might be for a couple different reasons, and I think we might hit both of those reasons this morning. But let me deal with the first reason, and let me appeal to you with this consideration. God wants you to humble yourself and confess in order to come to him 
that you're not a great, great addition to the family, that you're not doing him any favors. I don't mean that in an ugly sense. I mean that in a sense where you humble yourself to realize that you can't come to him any other way. He wants you to humble yourself so that grace can come in full view. Man, what a great message for the scribes and Pharisees among us. A passage I read a few weeks ago, a passage that Greg encouraged me with some time ago, Greg Fields, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what the thought is there? How can the power of Christ rest upon you if you're not boasting in your weakness? Man, the scribes and the Pharisees, their feet are well planted in Jerusalem. They can't boast of their weakness. They can't identify themselves as the blind, the sick, and the sinful in need of a Savior. And man, they're stuck. And God says, I have no regard for your best efforts. He wants you to confess people, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and that you are by nature children of wrath, and that you required something completely external for your salvation on your best day. Something had to come from outside of you to save you from your sins. And in case you forget, it's by grace you've been saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. And in case you forget again a few verses later, for by grace you've been saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And that saved so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, verse 7. See, here's the thing that has really struck me. And I wonder if we realize this this morning. It takes a tremendous amount of humility to follow and worship Jesus. A tremendous amount of humility. Because in walking away from Jerusalem toward no account Bethlehem, to kneel at the feet of a child, You've got to admit that you're a sick sinner in need of a Savior, in need of gobs of grace on your best day. You've got to admit that your lot was so bad that it took God dying. You realize that? It takes so much humility to follow Christ because you have to say, man, I'm officially a mess. I'm officially hopeless. And I'm going to take those humble steps, that 10K, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, away from the trappings of Jerusalem, away from power and prestige and self-glory and self-preservation. And I'm going to go humble myself and say, Jesus, save me. God, save me. I have no other hope. Man, the only medicine for the Herods, the chief priests, and the scribes is to humble yourself and walk the unimpressive steps to Bethlehem. And you know what? There's no account that anyone actually did it. (laughs) Isn't that sad? There's no account that no one actually, or there's no account that anyone actually did it. I think 1 Corinthians 1.18 is true. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing and well-planted in Jerusalem. Meh. Bethlehem, baby. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me deal with the wise men among us. Those are the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herods. Probably some of that in all of us. Let me deal with the wise men among us. I really like these guys. I'm going to just tell you, they, these, these are my faves. They're my faves in this story. I really enjoy them. Maybe in the whole nativity, I enjoy adult men of means and standing, loading up their donkeys to see a newborn king. I just like that, that recipe. What I enjoy about these guys is that they're like hunters looking for something true, searching the skies 
and searching ancient writings. I mean, who's reading Balaam's oracles? Do any of y'all, are any of y'all well-versed in Balaam's oracles? Did you know there are four? Did you know that that prediction of a star that comes from Judah comes from the fourth? I didn't. But these guys who probably didn't even read Hebrew were learning the language to go try and make sense of what this birth meant. These guys are what I want to call meaning hunters. Meaning hunters. I've been studying millennials a little bit. I'm realizing as I study something like that, I don't do this from the pulpit a lot. I don't talk about you know, Xers or boomers or millennials or these generations. And I kind of haven't given a lot of space to that. But what I've been studying is realizing that in our, in our environment, there's sort of a reculturing that takes place. Every generation, every new generation that comes, there's a reculturing. You know, whenever you go to a foreign land, for example, a mission-type venture, you want to understand how people communicate, how they hear, how their language works, if they have idioms or if they don't. You want to understand all those sorts of things so that you can connect to them. And I'm realizing, hey, we've got a reculturing that's taking place right under our feet, right in our homes, right in our church that we might be oblivious to because we say, ah, this is just Greenville. Okay, there's a millennial culture going on right underneath us. And these millennials, let me give you kind of a time frame so you wonder if you're a millennial. The guys that coined the phrase millennial put the beginning of the period in 1982 birth. That would put you as graduate from high school in the year 2000. Okay, and an ending, 2004. Okay, so from that period, if you're born between 1982 and 2004, you see different people put different dates on it, but the guys that coined the phrase, that's the window they give. 1982 to 2004. Okay, now what's, some, what's interesting about this generation is these guys get a terrible rap. You, got, you know what I'm talking about. I see some of you kind of smile like, man, I know. I know what people say about us. You got, I know what people say. You guys get a terrible rap. The, the articles and the, the studies and the titles that people have given to this, they call this the me generation. <laughs> Man, that's cringeworthy. The me generation characterized by narcissism, relativism, and entitlement. All right, we're going to be, I told you I was going to throw some rocks. I got some good news here in a moment, but we're going to be real straight about this. Characterized by narcissism, relativism, and entitlement. And some things are honestly, admittedly concerning. I just want to just say one thing about selfies, man. Y'all know that's not, you know, it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to tell you, it's just kind of weird. I saw a comedian, he was calling them lonelies. I don't call them selfies. I call them lonelies. <laughs> Get somebody else to take a picture of you. Man, selfies, is that a metaphor of this generation? Man, I hope not. Think about what this generation, the 1982-2004 birth window has been exposed to. They were exposed to Y2K. Remember Y2K? Man, the world's going to end. It's going to be crazy. Electricity's not going to work. Water's not going to work. We're not going to have any food. Everybody's stocking up on canned food. Y2K comes and goes, and they're like, what? Did, did that just happen? <laughs> what was that? The seniors in high school are going, what was that? What's the big deal? You guys are crazy. It's not a big deal at all. Some of the things that they've been exposed to also are the release of iPhones in the year 2007. You realize iPhones hadn't been around that long? 11 years? 2007, June of 2007. Something you can carry around with you all day long. You can sleep beside at night. You can take an endless supply of selfies and can communicate with an endless supply of texts and Snapchats. And by the way, the thing starts with an I, iPhone. If you think that's not going to affect your worldview, then you're dumb. D-U-M, dumb. <laughs> Another thing I think that is sort of a go-to issue is video games. All right, throwing some rocks. An environment which you, where, where you can have as many lives as you have time to play. When I was a kid growing up, we only had three video games. It was Pong. Space invaders and asteroids. And you only had as many lives as you had quarters. There's like a, a console at the pizza joint. You said this console, mom needs more quarters. I admit that's kind of hard for that to be addicting. Okay, well, that was our version. But man, our kids, these millennials, man, you guys have this environment. You can even climb into this virtual environment created by Al Gore. 
where you can communicate with people on the other side of the world and play a real-time video game with them. It's crazy. And there's all kind of crazy stuff that we could admittedly be concerned about with millennials. And I admit some of those things I'm concerned about. But here's what I see in millennials. That's where we're landing the plane this morning. Here's what I see in millennials. I've observed a generation searching for meaning and identity. In addition to the iPhone, Y2K, and video games, this generation was exposed to one of the most meaning-questioning events of our lifetimes. If you know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about 9-11. A senior in high school would have started their first year in college or their first year in trade school or first year in a job when 9-11 came. Man, tell me that's not going to shape some people. The icons of commerce in America crumble to the ground, filled with people that at least the concept is that are chasing the American dream. Tell me that's not going to shape a generation or affect a generation. You're D-U-M. Man, you're missing it. What I'm seeing in millennials is a generation of people who are not so much interested in making a lot of money or building a huge business or, or having a house with, with a three-car garage or a summer home, meh, as they are working somewhere for less money but having some meaning. I love that about millennials. And I love that about millennials. More interested in community and connecting and having a positive impact on this world. I've wondered if the millennials fell in love with Chris McCandless, the story that I read at the very beginning. He's become a hero. He wasn't a millennial, but he's sort of become a figure, a romanticized figure, a visual aid of what it means to be a millennial, to walk away from the establishment, to walk away from Babylon, which he did. He walked away from the trappings of Babylon. Man, I've wondered if he didn't resonate with millennials because of his rejection of establishment and his quest for something else that mattered. Disenchantment with the American dream times two. Finds out his dad had another family. Man, I bet that shaped that guy. Must have compelled him to walk away from it all. So he hiked away from Babylon for sure. Man, I want to just get offer this to our millennials, who's a large part of our church, and maybe some unbelieving millennials. I can make this promise to you that you are in league with Chris, this tragic story of Chris McCandless, if you look for meaning in a walkabout. I'm not against a walkabout, but if you look for meaning there, man, you won't find it. If you look for meaning in a virtual world, in a virtual environment with that next level, man, I, I can imagine that's exciting, but you won't find meaning. You won't find meaning in that next selfie or all those responses on Instagram. That's a quick fix, but there's not meaning there. There's nothing wrong with those things, but I can promise you meaning is not walking in that direction. You've got to head due west. Two thousand years ago, the Magi, maybe three of them, rejected the establishment and threw caution to the wind. They were meaning hunters. And they left Babylon and headed due west in search of something bigger than them. Something that would bring them to their knees, falling down in worship. And these men found it in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Amen? They had nothing to work with except scriptures, probably not even in their own language. From some obscure writing of Balaam's fourth oracle. And they had this bright arrow in the sky, whatever that was. But here's what you have to work with. Millennials and the rest of you. Very specific prophecies about where, he'd be, where he was to be born made hundreds of years before his birth. And that, by the way, is in an ancient book that's not obscure for you. That's not in some foreign language. It's sitting in your lap. 
Balaam's fourth oracle shouldn't be obscure to us. You realize that? If we fancy ourselves as wisdom hunters, truth hunters, meaning hunters, you've got the ancient scriptures in your hand. Man, we've got a lot to work with. We've got the visit that we read of here, the account from truth-seeking wise men to visit a newborn king. We've got the birth of someone so special that the king of nearly 40 years hunted him down and had all the boys below the age of two killed. We've got the account of a sinless life and an undeserving death that actually paid for the heavy weight of the sins that we carry. We've got the account of his victory over death and resurrection from a sealed tomb. We've got eyewitness accounts of his post-resurrection body and life. And these guys went to their graves, oftentimes, sometimes, through severe suffering, without recanting. You realize what we have to work with? Man, if you're still moving on in unbelief, I have great fear for you. And I make this last appeal to you. It's in the book of Matthew, and you can look there if you'd like. This is our closing passage. Matthew chapter 12. Just a short, brief passage, but it's important. I know we've had a heavy morning, but I don't want you to check out. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. The sign of Jonah. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, listen to this, the men of Nineveh, we could even say the men of Babylon, we could say the three wise men, if it was three, show up here, and will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This generation he's speaking of here. The scribes and the Pharisees that had the light of the word, they had the expectation of the Messiah, they had all the things. And you know what? They didn't have half of the things we have. The men of Nineveh, the men of Babylon, the Magi will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, an eight-word sermon, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You just almost hear the Magi. They may bring judgment on you if you continue on in unbelief. I'm talking to young people too. I know this is a mouthful this morning. I know it. But I want you to hear this. Imagine these magi. I forget their names. Crazy names. Balthazar is one of them. Imagine these guys looking you in the face saying, man, all I had was Balaam's oracle and a light to follow. And I believed. But you, though, you had it all. You had it all. Something greater than Jonah here. Something greater than an ancient oracle and just a light. What will you do with this newborn king?